0: A quick hello, and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, David Land, and genie Hill.
1: It doesn't get any better than that, right? I'm really thrilled to be here. And I don't <laughs> think I'll have enough time to cover everything in one session. So we'll need to say, schedule another one, I think. <laughs> right, yeah, brilliant. I actually thought you were going to say the,
0: the at the beginning, it doesn't get any better, full stop. Meaning the song was bad to start with, and it hasn't got any better. But you actually meant it doesn't get any better than that. That's delightful introduction um, and shows how variable the English language can be, uh, and presumably any language. What am I talking about? Let's get on with the show. We're going to show your Brand SERP, what we do every time. And we've got your Brand SERP up, up here, and as one would expect, bonjour from the Google Adviseur in French. If we can show the screen, Anton, for David's Brand search, that would be great. Yay, there we go. Um, David's Brand search with. Actually, it's the American one with the filter pills at the top, which I really enjoy that you don't get in the rest of the world, and I hope we will soon. Um, Your Google Books description and then four of your books. Uh, Your books are obviously a big part of this. You've written gazillions of books, as we'll see. But if we click on that filter pill books at the top, it's a really interesting result. For the next screen, we get the result with David Ameland Books which is not the same as if you type David Ameland books directly into Google. It's a different filter. It's a knowledge filter, let's say. And it shows all your books, um, which is easy for mm. Google because it's got yeah, the, no. books, the <laughs> Google Books vertical. Uh, and one thing I noticed is you've got your entity home. Your site is very present. Google likes your site. Um, so you've actually spent the time and being super-duper SEO expert. You obviously did it incredibly well. And I took a screenshot of your site as well with all your books. So a bit of promotion there for you. There you go all of those books and I've got one of them here hold it upside down intentional which has just come out and is absolutely brilliant although I've only read the first few pages because my eyesight's failing welcome thank you thank you I'm thank really you.
1: glad to be here
0: brilliant now we were going to talk about why search underperforming even as its computational power is increasing and that question came up because edward snowden Tweeted out that Google's results are rubbish now, and they used to be much better. Loads of people jumped on and said, "Yeah, we agree. Google's no good anymore. It was so much better in the past." Personally, I think it's the opposite, and that got you involved in the conversation. And you gave some reasons, which I kind of I won't reveal now because we're going to go into that. But why do we have this perception that Google's getting worse?
1: Well, every time. Google changes. It goes through a process where it updates its uh, index, and then it better matches the search query with what it thinks is the possible answer. And Google is a data company. Everything it does is driven by data, which means it's driven by the here and now. And whatever assumptions it makes are based on data. And here's the catch to all this. Google is incredibly, incredibly smart. At the same time, it is regressive in terms that it always chases the end user. Uh, Our behavior always evolves on the web. Uh, Technology advances and evolves really quickly. And we evolve with it. And that is always unexpected. I mean, just search queries on their own, there's a massive number that Google sees every month that are absolutely unique, which is mind boggling. But there's an even greater number of search behaviors so Google is always going to play catch up. And while it, di- it tries to do that, it tries to accumulate the data necessary in order to a- affect the changes it needs and improve search, there's that interim period where things kind of degrade a little bit. And we have seen it before, historically, we saw it when semantic search was introduced. So we went from the you know cold 10 blue links, which we had to go through ourselves and they used to be relatively satisfactory. Yeah. And then suddenly everybody said, oh, this is rubbish, it doesn't work. And it didn't. Except it did in certain verticals. And then it got better and better. So we're in that interim stage right now.
0: And so the interim stage, sorry, because I can see multiple possibilities. One, One interim stage is that we see something good And because we're spoiled children, basically, we then expect even better and we then perceive what we had seen before as being better because it met our needs and our needs have now moved forwards into our expectations rather have moved forwards. And the other is the kind of the idea of Google, as you said, catching up and going through periods when it isn't quite up to scratch because it's drastically trying to change all the way it functions and the uh, things it puts in the SERP and the algorithms to catch up with what it thinks we want.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, is, that's it in a nutshell. There's a lot of things involved in that, of course. I mean, we, we ask ourselves, for instance, why don't the websites with great content come up and satisfactorily Hmm. answer a particular question. And in that question, there's a, a sort of a, a massive depth of misalignment between, between what we do and what end users do. And Let's discuss this. I mean, primarily, if we talk about search and content, it should yeah. be black and white, right? We, should, we say we have particular content, which we write or create in order for a website to surface in particular search queries, which satisfy the need of that particular end user. I mean, it, it's something really basic. And we create the content, so we, you know, if we're the website owner or the business owner, we know what we do. It should be straightforward. We just put it up there on the web in as ma- much detail as possible, and that should yeah. work, and it doesn't. <laughs> and the reason it doesn't is because, essentially, we are looking to satisfy intent, and Google is, is looking to satisfy intent. So interestingly, uh, Google on their blog, which is a um, thing with Google, they um, have gone from chasing the customer journey to actually explaining that it's an emotional customer journey. And the micro moments in which we make decisions which lead to particular purchase behaviors have changed now. And when you say there are many touch points, there are emotional touch points. And emotional touch points have the ability to sway something which, um, when it comes to a decision, either one way or another, without us being able to understand quite why.
0: Right, and, no. and so Google's algorithms yeah. then are chasing these emotional touch points. So the machine is trying to understand their emotions and what's going to trigger them to get us to appreciate Google.
1: Yes, well, in a way, what, what Google's perspective is, is that everything which we do is data. Essentially, we are data, we are information. Right. And if they have a sufficient amount of information, then they should be able to understand us better. And if they understand us better, they should be able to satisfy our needs when it comes to search, which is why we use search and present us with the information we want. Now, if we if we think of the alignment on the other side of the divide, the, the website owners or the, the business owners, they think, well, what they need to serve is sufficient content for the site to attract the end user or to serve a sufficient number of end users so that they basically um, are satisfied by what they see. But Mm. there is a misalignment there from both ends. And Google is trying to reverse engineer intent. And what we know from neuroscience is that when there's an action, the intent behind it is never quite clear. So if we go backwards from an action, look at the causal, causal chain of events, we say here's intent and that leads to action, which leads to particular behavior Well, if we try to reverse engineer that, that is not exactly easy to do because there are a number of intents hidden behind a particular action. And even Google knows that. Again, they had a blog post not too long ago where they gave an example of three different people using the same search term and doing different things with it.
0: But it also means even when they do figure it out, what the intent was behind a specific query, it's going to be good for 50% of the people, not good for 10% of the people, and totally wrong for 40% of the people because we're also fundamentally different in the way we're triggered in terms of intent to action.
1: Yes, absolutely. And we're different from in different things. I mean, what are we different in? We're different in terms of culture, for instance. Mm. And we know that culture changes behavior even when all the other things are the same. And we have concrete examples for that. I mean, eBay failed in China, for example because Mm -hmm. it's a different culture, even though people still want the things that eBay has to offer, and eBay didn't change the business model. Uh, Carrefour, your French uh, (laughs) chain of supermarkets, failed in Japan. And so did Walmart, also failed in Japan. And so did Tesco, also failed in Japan. So the three instances of very big, very clever, very, very smart supermarket chains with a very refined model of operation, failing to take into account culture, and failing to address the needs, the emotional needs of human behavior, which is intent, fundamentally. Right. And
0: from Google's perspective, I mean, are, are the markets they don't currently dominate, um, such as Turkey, Russia, um, obviously China's a slightly different case, are they are they getting it wrong in terms of intent? Are those, or Czechoslovakia, or sorry, the Czech Republic, rather, are they countries that are off grid in terms of intent or is it simply that they haven't managed to dominate through um, different reasons for business reasons or for other companies already being in place?
1: Well you have to think that you have to think that every business works in a particular context and nothing happens in a vacuum so Mm -hmm. those businesses which actually do take culture into account and I mean sometimes they're local because they're from that particular culture yeah but they can be from abroad from outside that but if they are culture sensitive they succeed so then at the moment they succeed they sort of make it that much harder for right. another company to take over because they have a smaller share of the market but also it'll be more expensive for them to actually get up to speed and actually become culturally sensitive and aware
0: right so it's now too late for everybody else so get on with getting with dealing with uh, the fact that it's uh, google leading the market um right so from 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 that perspective the the idea that we have intent google's trying to understand intent and with rank brain for example it theoretically got a lot better but you're saying that it still isn't very good because that intent varies across different people across different cultures and they can't possibly account for that
1: well Well, if we say we can't possibly counter that, that's not really true. All they need Mm. is sufficiently massive amounts of data, which they're busy getting. What they need to take into account, however, which this is where the interesting bit comes in, is that culture is an ever-evolving, ever-changing thing. Mm. Human behavior is an ever-evolving, ever-changing thing. So fundamentally... That's a, a catch-up game for Google that they can never really win because they can only get the data that they get once they have accumulated a sufficient number <laughs> of human behaviors. Let's call it that, and those are constantly evolving. So the ev- the rate of evol- evolution is always going to be greater than what they're actually putting in place.
0: Right. I mean, one really good example of that that I use is is Google Maps. Is that kind of when Google Maps gets it wrong, I suddenly get really frustrated with it. And ten years ago. I was really happy when it got it right once in every five or six times. So my expectations have gone totally through the roof and Google can't possibly keep up with everything. I I think it's done with Google maps, at least a pretty good job of keeping up with my expectations Mm. and that the reviews tend to be reasonably accurate and it tends to send me to the right place. And I don't go round and round in circles when I'm driving in my car with my Google maps going.
1: Yeah, that's a good example, okay? And 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 again, this is um clearly a case of accumulating data. And if mm-hmm. we think about Google Maps, we have geography in place. Wow. And geography is fairly rigid, fairly, right? I mean, obviously things change, but not drastically, which means that as good you point. accumulate data, you're getting better and better and better. But when you apply that to human behavior, I mean just you and me, you get a new device, so you get two devices or a bigger screen or surround the screen, so you you get, you know, metaverse and you go uh, augmented reality, your behavior changes fundamentally. And it mm. takes time for Google to understand that.
0: Oh, sorry, there are two really nice points there. there I mean, there are obviously more points than that. But um, G- Google Maps is based on reality. It's based on physical things. And it, so Google's got, as you said, a foundation that doesn't change very much. The online world is becoming a reflection or is a reflection of the offline world, but it's, there's a disconnect there which makes it much more difficult for Google. And behaviorally, with Google Maps, I want to go from A to B to the best solution to my eating problem or my petrol problem or whatever it might be. And online, that intent is much less clear. So Google Maps is a working, functioning, fully functioning knowledge graph that solves geospatial queries in real time that it has never seen before quote from somebody i can't remember the name of but in a in a vacuum or in relative vacuum a very simple circus set of circumstances that is handleable and manageable and the, as soon as you hit the world, world wide web it gets much 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 more difficult
1: yes you do and i mean he's a he's a i mean you made a very interesting point which i need to sort of refine now you're Ooh. talking about google maps right and what do we have there we have strictly bounded context so right. you know you don't have an infinite number of roads that will get you from A to B. You have a, a source point and a destination, and you have you know perhaps time which you need to get there quickly or avoid certain things or you know you, you get there in a specific way so you can stop somewhere else. Um, this kind of setup where we create boundaries which narrow down the context allows us to then control within the soft sense of the word, human behavior and better understand intent. So in that regard, if we can find or if we can create specific perhaps silos or websites or situations where things narrow down, intent becomes a lot clearer to understand or at least guess at. Uh, Where this doesn't exist, you know, if we're looking at a map of the world, for example, and we're trying to to find something on it, then any place is possible and our intent becomes very, rarefied, very difficult to actually understand. So when we come to understanding what should we do in order to create better content, well, here's the first thing. And you know, this is the case where everything old is new again, or everything new is old again kind of thing. So we're talking about creating a marketing funnel, which creates boundaries, which allows the person who is looking at that to narrow down their choices in a, in a way that clarifies what they have to do.
0: Right, Oh, I like that. And and kind of the whole idea of intent, which is what all these kind of tracking tools like Ahrefs and SEMrush and so on and so forth, they're bringing in intent. Authoritas have done it as well. Authoritas do it by analysing the anatomy of the SERP to figure out what Google thinks the intent is, uh, which is a nice piece of reverse engineering and I think pretty smart. And that idea of intent, everybody's getting a bit obsessed about it. But you're saying it's actually to create those walls for your funnel, which I've never thought about before. I love that idea
1: well we we discussed this in the past and you know creating marketing funnels isn't all yeah no we're
0: just trying to create a a, a funnel in our little CaliCube world and it's actually surprisingly difficult to define where somebody is in that funnel what their intent is and what kind of content we need to create then you have how do you silo that intent for your own site which is actually pretty difficult and then you have the problem of how do i create this content Uh, let's
1: let's let's look at content creation that actually works, right? So let, let's start, approach the problem this way. If you were to create content, what would you need? How would you make it work best for you? And again, in, in the new way that the web is shaping up, what are we seeing? We're seeing that um, anything which resonates with a person individually, um, which creates those emotional touch points is most likely to move them because it most likely reflects the inten- intentions that led them to a particular A place which is most likely to lead to a behavior which we want to see. Uh, In most cases, a purchase decision or the consumption of a particular piece of information. So if we were to create content that does that, it needs to resonate with that person at at an emotional level with them. Which means it needs to address their particular needs in a particular way. We know, we have studies that show that content that is written with empathy, and we're using a word now, which again is very vaguely defined, um, resonates better with them, gets shared a lot more and leads more to behavior, which is desirable for the website in question. So in order to to understand this better, we need to say, okay, what is empathy? And if we just brush away all the misconceptions about it. Essentially, empathy is a mechanism in the brain that allows us to project ourselves in the shoes of the person we are targeting with our content and understand their behavior better, understand their motivation better, which gives us a handle on their intent, which allows us also to feel their emotional points. So if we can do that, what do we need to do that, right? We need knowledge. We need some kind of expertise, we need an idea of who they are, we need an idea of where they possibly are, and then we begin to understand the how of their situation. So if we have all those things, it's just information, basically data, then we can create content that is empathy driven, which then resonates with the audience.
0: And that, but then you have the problem, if I manage to do that, imagine that I'm some kind of philosophical, psychological genius who manages to figure out exactly what my persona is thinking, and I can figure out what the action, sorry, the, the emotional triggers are for the action I'm looking for. I've figured it out, I've created the best content in the world, I've stuck it in my perfect, uh, intense silo, whatever you want to call it. Google hasn't kept up, so it's useless, from a Google perspective, not from a, if I can get in there. By other means, which I think is something we often forget, is that I can actually get them to that page through social media or through an article that somebody's written about, the, the, whatever it is I'm offering, and that Google isn't the be-all and end-all. Google is simply trying to understand, but actually, from my perspective, and this is just my personal pitch, is create your content through users, figure out how you're going to get those users to the page without Google, and then package it up for Google and use Google as a bonus. But that wasn't the question. The question was, what happens if I've managed to figure it out and Google hasn't caught up with me? Uh, you faded just then on the last question. Right, so the question was, if I've managed to figure out what c- content I need to create to trigger the action I'm looking for, using my understanding of their empathy or my empathy for their, for their situation to get them the content to trigger the actions I'm looking for, but Google hasn't figured that out, the intent of the user, so I don't rank. Isn't, isn't that terribly difficult? So you actually, you, you need to actually come back and think, where, where is Google in this story? It, go, has Google understood? Sorry, go ahead. It,
1: it is. Uh, I mean, we, we need to understand a couple of things, right? We need to understand that um, human behavior is context-sensitive. And context is the situation where, in, in a particular case, um, a searcher meets content and gets signal from the noise, essentially. Now, Google is employing increasingly um, AI in terms of um, looking at the content that it actually serves and bringing in disparate elements together which are on the page in order to understand that page better, understand uh, the touch points that it meets from the end user perspective. So if we are truly creating content that is empathic in nature, it doesn't have to be very smart because by doing so, we are subconsciously already coding in the language that we use, the language precepts, if you like, which are going to resonate with the reader. And from the Google's perspective, it already knows what the signature of a page like that is likely to be. Right. So if it looks at two pages which are similar in content, one has been written perhaps by an expert SEO who doesn't feel anything except you know, the need to create content in order to get paid, <laughs> and the other one is written by somebody who's genuinely interested in helping the end user, my guess would be that the one which is written genuinely to help somebody will actually resonate better and be higher served or served more frequently than the other one.
0: Right. Okay. And, but does Google actually then has the problem of if I'm using the right vocabulary to indicate that I've got the solution and that I'm empathetic to the intent and the needs of the user, doesn't that tend to create fluffy language that machines have trouble understanding?
1: Well, you're saying fluffy language. And the thing is, if you're truly trying to help you wouldn't be, you're actually addressing specific needs. Okay. So the language which we'd be using, which we essentially subtly coded in terms of how you would help somebody, these are things which are perhaps a human visitor wouldn't catch on to really, unless they really have that need and then it resonates with them. But a machine actually does see that because they have so much data at their fingertips so they can actually see the, the structure of a page which has been expertly written. But doesn't feel anything, and one that actually is the opposite and actually does help somebody genuinely. Brilliant. Can you put that question up again,
0: Anton? Because Zara asked, with empathetic content, Google finds the answer for the searcher? Yes. Is that correct, David?
1: It does, yes. I mean, obviously, you know, we're saying is that infallible? No, it is not. And if also we ourselves are trying to help in a way that is unhelpful and that also happens right and we want to help somebody but we don't know just how well that's not going to to to, to serve them um correctly but if we truly know our stuff we truly want to help somebody do something and say okay here are all the choices you have this is how you should do it this is what you shouldn't be doing this is what you should look out for that's an amazing page oh there's another another
0: question monica can data act empathetically I like that question. Go on,
1: David. Can data act empathetically? We, we we are we are information. I mean, if we take our the sum total of our behavior and we can actually code it into data points and we have a sufficient number of those data points, then if we act empathetically, then yeah, the data that represents our actions is empathetic in turn. The the question suppose which everybody asks is can we fake it, <laughs> right? And I'm not sure the answer is yes or no on this one, simply because I know we can fake trust up to a certain extent. I know we can't fake it forever. And I think the same thing has to apply here. Can we create an expert page by somebody who's truly aware of these things and, and can project it for a while and that will work? Will it? Well, here's the thing. Maybe it'll work and it'll be fine for a while, but it won't long-term. Or the other thing is, if it's successful at appearing empathetic, well, it's not not then empathetic anyway. <laughs> so but I think, you know, you're not really faking it.
0: Right. And can that pushes it further, is can you use your own machine, your own AI machine learning generated content to fake it and to trick the other machine opposite to thinking you got it right? So it's basically then two machines talking to each other about what they perceive to be empathetic within the context that you've uh, created a page?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if you say, I mean, you know, uh, Monica says, is it always the humans? Well, it's our behavior that's actually being tracked, and it's our behavior that actually is is being uh, analyzed. Now, if we create a really smart AI and say, you can say, hey, can I fake empathy sufficiently for another machine to believe it? Well, the answer to that is probably yes. Why? Because machines understand machines a lot better than we understand them. Mm-hmm. And a machine can trick another machine. But the thing is, if that content then is served to humans, and there's a human element there always, because we look at usage, and we look at CTR rates, and we look at uh, social sharing, and we look at bounce rates, we look at all those things are so human activity. So when humans see that page, well, no they will not actually go for it. And, you know, in the past, we had spinner articles, right? Which, mm. you know, for a machine, it was possible, but for a human, it was laughable, right? So I think, you know, this is a classic example.
0: Right. Yeah, I, know, I think that's one of the, the, the questions we all have, or a lot of us have, about machine learning generated content is we're going back to the spinning world, obviously slightly better, but then you land <laughs> on the page and you think, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. And kind of, I think people forget the fact that even if you do manage to trick the machine, get yourself to rank. If your content doesn't satisfy the user, it was pointless.
1: Mm. Well, I think, I mean, it, it comes down to the past. I mean, again, with SEO, things change, but nothing changes really, right? So we have a, this discussion forever. We can say, first of all, what shortcuts should I take? And mm. yes, there are shortcuts. Yes, you can use a machine to write articles. Like in the past, you used a machine to write spinner content that help your website appear high for a while. And then it didn't, okay? And the argument behind that in the past was, you know, if I'm on the first page of Google back then, it meant a lot of money. If for a month or so, I make so much money that if my website is burnt yeah. afterwards, I don't care. Well, sure, you can do that. But this is not a, a long sort of a strategy, okay? It's short. And these days, the, the shorter strategy tends to be shorter than usual. People catch on very quickly. They're not so easily fooled. There's a trustworthiness element, which everybody is now sensitized to and there's also human behavior which is very volitional we choose where to spend our money we choose which websites to click on we choose which website content to share because we are aware of the impact of those actions so rewarding sites that trick us for example is something that's unlikely to happen
0: right okay so um from from one question i had kind of coming back to a point you made earlier on is With Google at the moment, if it's managed to understand the intent of a vast number of people for a specific search query or a series of search queries, but I'm a bit outside the box, I'm immediately going to be like our friend Edward Snowden saying this is all rubbish because I'm not typical.
1: Well, you are saying you're not typical, but over a long enough timeline, you do actually become typical. For Google at least, right? Because essentially it can read, I mean, you can see the pattern of your behavior and you mm-hmm. can understand part of your intent within a particular context. And again, the narrower the context, the easier it is for, for Google to understand what you do. So are you an easy person to understand? No any more than I am right I use Google in a very weird way because of my research because of the searches I do because of the information I Mm -hmm. seek and it's very difficult for Google to understand who I really am in terms of what I do but given enough timeline in a long enough timeline given sufficient data then the pattern of who we are is evident especially to a machine right I mean even a person could tell but a machine can tell it faster
0: Sure. But for us individually, you are typical, David. Um, Sorry, that was Anton. For people just listening, Anton just put that on the screen. But but the the question then then becomes, at what point will Google have enough data on all of us or each of us to be able to really nail down that specificity in the results for me compared to you, compared to the rest of humankind?
1: I suppose that answer depends on the rate of change of technology, which seems to have accelerated So, you know, if if things stay as they are right now and we all talk to each other through two-dimensional screens, we use the technology which we currently have, but even more so, and perhaps the connections can become more reliable, things can become faster, then you can say, okay, uh, if we take that into its natural sort of evolution, within 10, 15 years, search will be amazing. But this is not happening, right? What is happening? We are getting more and more photographic content, which now needs to be understood, video needs to be understood, we're using more video messages to each other, we're using behaviors on the web which have a timeline, so then they vanish after a while. We are going to get into augmented reality. We're going to get into virtual reality. All those things now are um, represented by an exponential growth of data points. So Google is you know, lost here, right? It's going to have to work really hard.
0: Right. I mean, uh, Fabrice Canel from Bing, uh, who's, who builds Mr. Bingbot, basically, I call him Mr. Bingbot and I get confused, but um, he, he's really, 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 really interesting guy to talk to. And he's saying basically the, the, tech or the, the, the machine learning that they use for Bingbot is getting better exponentially. Does that mean at any point it is actually going to catch up? Because you were saying right at the beginning, Google can't catch up or Bing can't catch up because we're changing... So very quickly, do you think with that exponential increase that we haven't seen previously, that it's going to end up
1: catching up? Well, oh, that's a difficult one to answer. I mean, the only thing, I mean, let's keep in mind that it's human behavior and human. the human brain has the capacity to outstrip machines at the moment. And I base this on the fact that when we come to something as straightforward as a sniper taking a shot at a target, you think, OK, this is a pretty straightforward thing. You have a firing platform which can actually be fixed you have so many variables which can be calculated by machine. And if you have a machine doing all this, then it's going to be better than a human because you can do it faster because the variables keep right. changing. So we have man versus machine here and the best machines in the world far, you know, powered by supercomputers can reach a target up to 500 meters. And the human person firing on a platform which is varying with their heartbeat, with their vision blurring, with the temperature in their body, and all those other variables goes over seven times that. So when you consider something as simple as that, and I know it's not simple, but you know, compared to what we're talking about, it is. Well, and yeah. you can see that humans outstrip machines, it means that human behavior is really difficult to model. So you know, I don't think there's adequate computing power to actually do that
0: right oh i like oh i like that that idea because
1: i mean it it also
0: means that we're never going to be satisfied we're going to spend the next 20 years being dissatisfied constantly with the fact that every time they catch up a little bit we our expectations move forwards and yes potentially that's pushing human beings to be more and more what's the word
1: evolved would that be a adequate word yeah, absolutely. I mean, we become, you know, for lack of a better word, digital natives, right, where the digital domain is native to our, our sort of mode of operation. We don't think of it as something which is additional or grafted on or separate from us. So if that becomes so ingrained, our behavior becomes so nuanced and it has so many mm. more touch points than now that it becomes exceedingly difficult for a machine, which thinks in a very straightforward but very fast fashion to actually understand it.
0: I I actually really like that, because what it means is Google is fighting a losing battle, chasing something it will never understand. And me as an SEO, to come back to that, I'm chasing a machine that I will never understand. So I'm chasing Google, Google's chasing human beings or humankind, and neither of us is ever going to catch up with our target. And that's a delightful um, visual (laughs) idea that I've just got in my head of people running around the world chasing
1: machines. Anyway. But, but. But in, in that in that scenario which you created, I mean, there is a viable <laughs> shortcut, which we know, oh. right? If we, instead of chasing Google, because Google, you know, what is Google chasing? Google is chasing the people we are chasing, essentially, their behavior, mm-hmm. right? So Google is chasing our customers, trying to make all the change across the web so they can see our content oh, yeah. and be satisfied with Google so they can use Google in their searches. So instead of us chasing Google, If we chased our customers, if we thought of their behavior, if we began to encode in what we do, that end user approach every time, then we would be on a winning curve here.
0: And, and ironically, that's what John Mueller tells us all to do. Create great content for your audience and you'll win the game. So, I mean, and it is kind of interesting because it is actually very good advice. Stop chasing Google, chase the human being. I would say chase the human being who is your client and package it for Google as best you can.
1: Yes. I mean, you got to think really? that essentially Google will try will try really hard to understand what we do in terms of the content which we create across the web. Obviously, if we make it so hard that it doesn't get it, that's you know, that's, a, that's a no, you know, it's not really much of a win, but it will try exceedingly hard. So instead of chasing every little nuance that Google is actually doing or putting in place, if we spend that amount of energy thinking, how can I bridge the gap at a human level with the people I'm chasing? How can I bridge the gap and actually address them individually or within a narrow enough demographic so that the content actually works? How can I create content that addresses specific demographics within a particular group instead of creating content of one size fits all, which is what many companies are trying to do right now. If we answer those questions, then a lot of the trouble which we face in terms of search will go away for us.
0: Which, I mean, basically leads it down to let Google figure out its own little puzzle, um, let's ignore it and focus on our, our business model. Um, and from from that perspective, pragmatically, what can we do? I mean, you're saying one size fits all isn't going to really work, but who has the means to create multiple variants of a piece of content to be able to fit multiple people?
1: Okay, I mean, when it comes to creating content, you, you need to focus more on emotions as opposed to just data. You need to focus more on specific demographics. You know, you, you, Let's say we take two people in a generation, one is 15 and one is 18, and there's only three years between them. And the emotional needs they have are already different. So right. we think of them as, you know, teens. Here's the content for teens. And, you know, they're actually two different sets of people. And right. the content should have been addressed for 15-year-olds, The content for 18 18- to 20-year-olds, perhaps. So we narrow it down. If we narrow it down, essentially, what we're creating other boundaries which allow context to guide the end user. And those who find that kind of, you know, cre- that fi- kind of funnel, are more likely then to convert into the customers that we need or the actions that we want.
0: Right. Oh, I like this. And it's nice that we're coming back to traditional marketing, which is understand your user or your customer. Um, And we spent 20 years trying to cheat the machine because the machine was fairly... Stupid, let's say. Um, But talking about the machine being fairly stupid, sorry, I'd I'd really like to come into the part that you actually mentioned in the description about um, Google using Mum and Bert to actually start to catch up with
1: this or at least do a better job. Um, what, What were you intending to say about that? Well, you know, essentially we looked at the changes that Bert and Mom have brought about. And Marty's Mom was this multitasking unified model that brings in a lot of different content elements together. Bert was a sensitivity to specific type of search queries. And they're all about clarification. And the, the reason Ooh. Google needs that clarification is what we started off with, right? How does Google understand my intent and your intent when we start on our search? And then bring us the best possible content that will answer the... The perceived intent that we have. So essentially, you know, it comes down to these things. Some I mean, people get excited, they get frightened by these changes. they think you know, it's going to be a lot of work. And no, I mean, SEO is the work that was back in ninety eight, right? You create hmm. clear content that answers clear needs on your target audience. Do you know your target audience? If you don't, you're missing. You're missing out on the entire thing. Do you know what they really need? What is clear content for them? And what we usually write is what? Content that's clear for us. No, that's totally different. What we know, what we think is not the same as what they know and what they think. So we need to change sort of sides and see things from their point of view and create content that actually reflects exactly what they expect to see. I mean, this is where expectations come in, right?
0: Right. And that is kind of one thing that I think a lot of us have had a great deal of trouble with, is taking that step back and stopping saying, this is this is how I perceive how this should be presented, and think, how do they want to see it? Um, I find it difficult. And when I do do it, it is actually successful in terms of uh, the people converting, not necessarily in the rankings in Google. I'm still slightly concerned that Google isn't, as good at understanding the content as we often like to think it is with the mums and the birds of this world?
1: Well, it isn't, um, it, it isn't for many reasons. I mean, most of the time it isn't because we don't make it as clear as it should be. At other right. times, perhaps, you know, the structure we put in place, you know, the technical sort of difficulties. But ultimately, if we create content that is truly clear for the audience, Google will understand that. And essentially, that is what gives us the winning. that... The winning sort of a trick that we are looking for, right? That's the kind of connection with our audience.
0: Right, brilliant. Okay, well, for me, that's been an incredible conversation. Is there anything you would like to add that we haven't talked about? Because you did say you had a plan, uh, and I'd like to be sure that you got everything you wanted to say in there. Is there anything I didn't ask or that didn't come into the conversation that you want to add? Well, we covered a lot of
1: things. I was going to say there's a lot of things which we sort of didn't have a lot of time to catch. on, took to, it to to sort of uh, um, catch on. Essentially, what we say when it comes to behaviors, which come from intentions, they start off from an origin which is usually emotional in aspect. And we do things. Any kind, any kind of motivation has the same exact same schema, if you like. It takes us from a place of dissatisfaction, we are not happy with something, to a place of satisfaction that leads to action. So finding out, being able to or being capable of analyzing what our target audience is unhappy with and what they're looking to change is something which requires from us that clear understanding of who we are targeting when we're selling something or or, you know, uh, putting some kind of information out there, or even trying them to, to get them to subscribe to a newsletter, perhaps. So these are the things which we need internally to begin to analyze in our business model. And it's something which is not happening uh, very often, simply because, well, until now, we haven't really had the need for
0: Right. I and mean, that just makes me think that a lot of the time I create stuff or I put content out there and I think, ooh, this is going to be really good fun, but I'm actually creating content for a need that people don't know they've got yet. And then I try to convince them <laughs> that this is a need they had. And that's that's is that an impossible task or is it just much more difficult?
1: <laughs> well, it as usual, these things, it comes down to how you frame them. So if you frame it as a solution to a problem perceived problem, and you can demonstrate how we can be that solution, then the resistance to, so, to doing something new, which is what it's all about, uh, tends to sort of dissipate a little bit.
0: Right, okay, brilliant. That's a great piece of advice for me personally, because I'm trying to get people to do something new, which is take their Brand SERP and their Knowledge Panel seriously. Thank you so much, David. That was absolutely brilliant. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. We got loads of comments. That was amazing. Lots of conversations going on, lots of things popping up on the screen. That was loads of fun. Uh, I'd like to just announce next week, we've got Perna Virgi. Uh, from LinkedIn. She's absolutely brilliant. She's delightful. She's smart. And she's going to be talking about, if we can have that up on the screen, there we go, prominence versus presence on LinkedIn. Uh, That's next week with WordLift and Ahrefs as the sponsors of KellyCube Tuesdays through the month of January.
1: Uh, Please, could you pass the baton, David? Absolutely. And I had to actually look up uh, how to pronounce Purnas name in Sanskrit word which means wholeness or perfe- perfection. And I think when it comes to the kind of subjects she's going to talk about, it's absolutely perfect. I hope she lives up to it.
0: I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely brilliant. That's really put me to shame because I've said her name totally wrong and I've never looked it up how to say Purna or however you just said it. I can't remember. I, Purna, welcome. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. I know she's delightful. I know she's wonderful. And the conversation's are always an absolute pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you, David. Thank you, Anton. Behind the scenes, see you next week. And I almost forgot the outro song. A quick goodbye to and the show. Thank you, David. Thank you, and take care. Thank you so much.